0: The first book of the Bible is the book uh, in the Hebrew called Barashit, which means in the beginning, the first word uh, in the Hebrew. In the the Greek, the word is beginnings, which is Genesis, as we say Genesis. And so that's where we're at. So turn to Genesis 50, but go back uh, just a few verses, just so that we can get our context. It's been a really neat week. Um, We had our first couple study, and that was just a fantastic time. Um, Don't feel left out if you're not a couple. We have all kinds of studies for everybody. I think there's 10 or 11 studies now available to you in one way or another, so please be involved. Um, There's all kinds of opportunity. We pick it up in chapter 49, the last verse, which is verse 33. Read along with me if you would, please. When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have now found favor in your eyes, please speak now in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. And my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, "Go and bury your father." And he made you as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and went up. See, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of, Pharaoh, of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only the little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen, and they. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad. Could you say Atad? Atad. No, you can't say it like "Atad." Atad. Atad. That's a little better. Which is beyond the Jordan. And they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed 70 days of mourning for his father when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, and they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore the name was called Chabel Mizraim. Could you say Chabel? Chabel Mizraim. 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 Not bad. Which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan. And buried him in the cave, of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, which Abraham bought for the field from Ephron, the Hittite, as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. Then Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for the evil they did to you. Now please forgive the trespass of your servants, I'm sorry, of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we're your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it to about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land in which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Will you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you for the privilege it is to spend this time now in your word. How beautiful it is, Lord, that we have this opportunity to expect your word to minister to each of us, that we may come from very, very different places, different parts of walk in regards to stages, early, later, growing, insecure, secure, whatever the case would be, and Lord, yet in every place, you know how to speak to us. You know how to speak to the unbeliever by the power of your Holy Spirit with a gospel, the gospel that brings salvation to any who would believe. You know how to offer that pure milk of your word for the new believer that they would grow thereby. You know how to provide the rich meat for those that are growing that can sink their teeth into it, that they would not be divided or suckered in by the wiles of the enemy, but rather that they would grow and speak the truth in love, grow into a single body, functioning as a single body. With you, Jesus, as our head. You know how to challenge the complacent, to warn the unruly, to encourage the discouraged, to challenge and and uphold the downtrodden. And God, as you know where every person is here now, speak. Speak fluent us. Minister profoundly, God, I pray, that every one of us could say, what fun we had how I encountered Jesus and how my life will never be the same as a result of it. So Lord, Get me out of your way. Immerse me in your spirit that I would disappear. And then fill me to overflow and come upon me in such a way that you would empower me to do that which I cannot humanly do. That heaven would be delivered to each of us today. That we would embrace your grace. That we would further disappear, that you would further appear. That we would be consumed in your love. That we would fall in love with the God who has fallen in love with us we would learn how to delight in your delight, even today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. I mean, to put things into perspective, where we're at, by the way, this book started roughly between 2,000 and 2,500 years ago. It has been a little over 2,000 years, two millenniums, since the creation of the world. It will be about another 2,000, roughly 2,000 years, before Jesus will come in the flesh. Which, interestingly enough, means that somewhere in the last handful of chapters of the book of Genesis, we've gotten our halfway mark of Old Testament history. Everything else that we'll see now in the Old Testament will take place then in that last two millenniums. This last millennium, this millennium will take us from this point, arguably within at least 700 to 1,000 years, to the point of David, which will be right at about 1,000 B.C., David the king, and then David the king to Jesus about another 1,000 years. That sort of puts things into perspective. We started this book with creation, with a God that has a board meeting, A board meeting with himself when he says, let us make man in our own image, in the likeness of us. And the words there, beautiful, these words of casting a shadow and seeing something in content and in character that I'd say, something unique about man will be unique about God. And then where just in classic Hebrew uh, way of teaching, didactic teaching, there is that sort of question that's put, and then you're like, well, now I need to go find the answer. Like Jesus would say, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And there I am looking for that thing unique about man. And, and he makes all of these other creatures, and God breathes life into this man, and he gives us the play-by-play in chapter 2 of, of Genesis. And this man opens his eyes, or whatever the case be, and now is a living being, and, and his first encounter is with God, and recognizing, you give me life, and you make beautiful things for me to enjoy and explore. And, and that's the relationship, that's the first data that man has to process in his head. It wasn't, what do I eat? It wasn't, who am I? It wasn't, what's my place in this world? It wasn't, what's my purpose? In the beginning, all it was, was, I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, you gave me life. You make beautiful things for me to enjoy. Let's hang out together. And God, after making man, takes the next day off. You get the idea, don't you? It wasn't like God was like, whoo, I bush. Making a man's a little rough. He's like, now that I have you, Let's go on a honeymoon. She and me. Let's just walk around the garden. Let me make stuff. Let's enjoy. Let's explore. Let's go discover. God has nothing to discover. He all knows it. He's made it. But the idea, just like a parent, though you know where you're kind of leading your child to stumble upon a present. You're stuck somewhere, and and there's the parent going, "Oh, come on, come on, come this way." Oh, what's this? You know, try this and, and stick your face in it and imagine what it would be like not to even know you have taste buds and to stick your mouth into that juicy peach for the first time and your mouth cramps a little bit, and you go, "Oh, this is good." Oh, and God makes another tree. Try this and okay, and you make three three trees into it. But I'm ready. Just you don't even have to tell me what to do. Make a tree. I'll stick my face in it and just start chewing, you know, and just boom, into the watermelon and whatever. Just I mean, and there is you know Adam with his just face dripping and all this stuff, you know, from his hair, watermelon seeds and peach fuzz and all kinds of stuff, and just and that smile on his face. And no one says no. will you just clean yourself up. You're embarrassing me. It's just God having a good time with His creation, and this is the beginning the way God intended. And I'm still looking for that unique thing. And then God says, it's not good that he should be alone. Let's so make him a helper, and it's there. And to help him what? To help him do what? Do you realize, my job, if I were the first man, your job, if you were the first man, was to explore the wonders of God's garden, partake of it, and find God in it, and enjoy it. Now, which one of you would like to be assistant that? Sign me up. Help help you and and me explore and discover and enjoy and delight and encounter that God. And I go, oh, that's the thing unique about man. It's not good that he should be alone. Man was made with that companionship. With that capacity for companionship because... God has that capacity for companionship. And he wanted to make us in such a way so that when we feel lonely, God says, now you know how I feel. Now what does it mean to be lonely? That means there's someone you want, but they're not there. But God says it could get worse than that. He goes, have we not had a good relationship? Loose paraphrase. Search it on your own. We're only in two chapters into, into Genesis, and we're not going to go through the whole thing that way. But like, have, do we have a good relationship? Have I not made beautiful things for you to enjoy? Have we not? I mean, can you trust me? There's one tree I want you to stay away from: the, the tree of a knowledge of good and evil. Now, understand, every other tree was the tree of the knowledge of good. This was just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a new element. And it was an element that God did not intend for you. He didn't want for you. Now the word evil, ra'a in the Hebrew, means harm, pain, suffering. All of that wraps up into that same word. He goes, I don't want that for you. That's not what I want. And he goes, on the day, and he says, on the day that you eat it, knowing he will, but on the day that you eat of it, mut to mut, literally, you'll die to die. On the day. Now, I'm assuming all of us are relatively familiar with this story. As God brings that helper for Adam, as the two of them are every place but the one place they shouldn't be, they're actually the one place they shouldn't be. And with that then they find themselves biting into that fruit. The Bible never says it's an apple. It doesn't say it isn't though. So don't try to you know, tell someone they're not saved because they call it an apple or because it was a whale for Jonah. Just back off for a moment on that. Let them fall in love with Jesus. Anyways, with that, and when they do, it's interesting because then I look and I go, well, what happens that day? Because he says, on the day that you eat of it, mutamut, you'll die to die. Well, it's interesting because that day, it isn't like either one of them goes, ah, this is terrible, ah. I mean, what a short book that would be. And who would be, who would we be to read it? All of mankind had been eliminated with one false swoop. So, so, so it's interesting because it isn't like either one of them ceased to breathe. Their brain ceases to function. Their heart ce- seems to pump, ceases to pump. But that day, they are severed from the intimate relationship that they had had with God. And, and I need to recognize something. In my journey to discover Jesus, in my desire to know God better, I didn't have to get but to chapter 3 to realize that God's definition of death must be a bit different than mine. You see, my definition is kind of simple. It's, you know, you stop breathing, your heart stops pumping, your your brain stops functioning, or whatever the case is. But let's be honest. When God starts to define what death is, listen to this. James 2.26 As the body... Without the Spirit is dead, so is faith without works. It's dead. God says, "You know what death is? Two things that should be together that aren't together anymore." And that's why it hurts. Because what hurts? I mean, what hurts is not that they stop breathing. What hurts is not that their heart stops pumping. What hurts is I lose my relationship with you. Isn't that what hurts? And you can look at the body. You can look at the shell. You can stand there and stare at the coffin. And you can see the face. It's the same face. It's the same hand wearing the same ring, the same shirt that you've even walked out and you've spilled stuff on. It's the same jeans that you knew well. That have, you know, it's the same shoes that have kicked you in the rear end because they were such a joker or whatever the case is. And you can look and you can plan and you can devise and you can scheme and you can, you can have all of these intentions, but none of them are going to be lived out anymore because you've lost your relationship with them. And you can talk, but they're not going to talk back. And if they do, they're not dead. And you can say, come on, let's go. But they can't go. And I get the idea that because we dwell so much in the physical world, God gave us a simple illustration of something, well, well, that we need to understand from his perspective. See, scripturally, according to Ephesians 1, it tells us that we were born dead, Spiritually. And yet, God has the power over life and death. And until we accept the gift of the author of life, we will always be dead spiritually. And that is a God who can look at you and say, I have such great plans for you. But you're not going to respond back. And say, I have these gifts for you to open. And you, 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 it's just not the same. Because there's no relationship there. And that same way to this day, amongst the traditional Jewish company, and much of the Middle East, by the way, there is the declaration of death between individuals. You've done something that is offensive now. In some of the Middle Eastern cultures, they'll just literally physically kill you, so that's a pretty easy way to kind of account for. it. But even in a Jewish home, they can look at someone, and if you've disgraced them, a parent will look at their child and say, you are dead, you are dead, you are dead. And if it's done three times, that means we no longer have a relationship. Don't talk to me. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to feed you or provide for you. I'm not going spend any time with you or anything you are dead to me that means we no longer have a relationship among the jewish culture to this day they understand death it's interesting because one of those boys raised in that kind of home was the one that told us in the book of romans that's the way you're supposed to look at your old self reckon your old self dead we don't have a relationship anymore I'm not going to provide for you. I'm not going to feed you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to listen to you. We're not going to hang out. You're dead. You you stink. You're dead. Dead, 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 dead. Reckoning, it means, it's like zombies. It's a problem. The old self that Jesus crucified, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, because the wages of sin is death, that's what we've earned. And it's like Jesus says, I'll take all that death upon myself. And for the God who dwelled with God as one, and how that works, I don't have to explain it. He's God. He's bigger than my math. Somehow in that broke relationship because it wasn't that Jesus just physically died. He had to break that intimacy with the Father. And to suffer on the cross was painful, but nothing like experiencing that break from the Father, which he's never had before that. And all of that, I mean, just to go, wow, Jesus, you were so physically tortured. And to dwell in this fleshly world, I could say that's a huge sacrifice, and it is. But to think that you would break that relationship just so you could have me. I don't know if I can grasp that. And then to rise from the dead so that we could have intimacy, to to be reconciled, to be made alive. And that's what it says in Ephesians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and sin, he made alive. And this is why Buddha can't do it for you. And this is why Muhammad can't do it for you. And this is why no one else can do it for you, because nobody else took your death upon themselves to pay for so that they could offer you life. Because a human being can't give you life spiritually. They can offer you, but Jesus is the one who can give you that life. Now please understand, having said all of that, the book begins with creation and intimacy and ends with death and death. And there's a part of me that goes, oh God, that you would deliver from this. It actually ends not only with death, but it ends with a promise. Joseph says, you guys are leaving this place. And when you do, take my bones back. There is a mummified Joseph somewhere in Shechem to this day. There is a mummified Israel somewhere in Machpelah to this day. Mummified, we'll see that here. And the reason I say that is, please, every moment you feel lonely, every moment you feel empty, you just wish you could have such a companion. Will you remember who created that cavity, who wants to fill that cavity, and who feels that infinitely more for you? Jesus didn't die to send you to heaven. He died to be with you. Everything else is the product of that. In our text, it says Jacob had finished commanding his sons. Now remember, the commands that he had given, by the way, these, these prophecies, well, some of them weren't so pleasant. In effect, the first three boys, he basically excommunicated. He declared them in essence, dead in that sense. His oldest, because he had actually gotten romantic with one of Jacob's um, spouses, so to speak. The next two, because they had eliminated an entire city. They had killed all of these men. Number four in line, by the way, then, is Judah. Judah, by the way, then will be given, in essence, the right of the firstborn, where Joseph's boys will be giving the blessing of that firstborn. Uh, In essence, what you'll find is actually, you'll find that it's Joseph who's responsible for taking his dad back. Have you seen that here? And that, by the way, will open up another text you may be familiar with in the New Testament that you may go, wow, Jesus sounds so harsh. Well, look at it with me now as we sort of go through it. And forgive me for, well, no, don't forgive me for the rant. There should be nothing to forgive. It says here, by the way, then, Jacob had finished commanding his sons, He withdrew his feet up into his bed, breathed his last, and there he was. And he was gathered to his people. Joseph wasn't going to go be carried to a place where he would be alone. He'll never be alone again. Joseph fell on his face, and he he wept over him, and he kissed him. No doubt. Now, it's interesting, because God just fast-forwarded 17 years. When Dad went into Egypt, we read, by the way, that he was 130, because Pharaoh asks him, How old are you, old man? And he says, 130, they've been short but cruel days. Now he's on, he's, And you can just see him, going, I'm ready to die, and you can just sort of wait on dad for 17 years. And now dad's dead. 17 years we've moved forward. By the end of this chapter, we'll move forward another 56, 57 years, because that's how long it'll be before actually um, Joseph will pass away. So he fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. And then Joseph commanded his servants, The physicians to embalm his father, and the physicians then embalmed Israel. Now, it will be uh, in essence, this total will be about 58 years by the time from this point to the to the end of this book. Now, for what it's worth, there are seven basic things that happen in an Egyptian embalming. I don't know if you're aware of this. Let me just sort of lay them out, so at least you can sort of you know know to some degree. Uh, It's about a 70 day process. So, you know, when a person dies in Egypt, and by the way, this isn't done to everyone, of course, this is done to the important people in the eyes of the Egyptian culture. The religious leaders, much more the the social leaders of the day, certainly every pharaoh. The first thing is the announcement. There's this public declaration that this person has died. Now, with that in mind, that gathers a certain amount of people. The next thing that happens is this particular body is washed in palm wine and also in the Nile. Why the Nile? Because the Egyptians believed all life came from the Nile. One of the reasons, and by the way, that's important, because we're going to see the Nile come up in a few chapters as we begin Exodus next week. And we're going to see that the Nile will be the place everyone thought was the source of life. And here's a woman bathing in the Nile and sees a baby come up from the river. Think about what that would be for a person who believed that the source of life was the Nile. Well, with that in mind, you washed in all of this, then they remove your brain. And they do it through a hook, they put it through your nose, they spin it around to scramble your brains and then flip you over. And then It, it all depends on whether you like them scrambled scramble over easy. Anyways, and then they kind of slid in your side and remove all your internal organs. And then they put them all in pots with little sort of heads on the top of those, like given to different Egyptian gods. And then after that, they take you and they cover you in salt. And they cover you in salt completely for 40 days so that it dries out all of the vapor, all of the water in your, in your body. Now, at that point, you're basically an empty shell. And every Egyptian knows that. You're an empty shell, brainless shell, a heartless shell. <laughs> and don't go anywhere with thinking people you know out there. But in that, uh, ultimately, yeah, when those 40 days are done, interestingly enough, they take the heart and they put the heart back in. Now, they don't do that with your brains. They don't do that with your kidneys or any of the other things, but your heart, they do put back in your body. And then as they put that back in your body, they actually then cover you in this plant resin and and perfumed oils. And they'll do that, and it'll take a whole day, but when they do, they will give over 100 yards of linen and they will cover you, and, and over your body weight in this plant resin, and they'll cover you, and then they'll, they'll, they'll wrap you in these strips, and then they'll put a wooden board underneath you, and then they'll cover you again, and then put the strips over you and the wooden board, and then ultimately this big long strip that they'll put all the way around you. And then when that, all of that happens, ultimately, now you're actually sort of ready, and you're, you're fully covered, and then the last thing that takes place after those 40 days of preparation is a funeral procession. The greatest funeral processions will last 30 days. That would be for the most important people in that society. Now, back in our text, and the only reason I tell you all of that is because it tells us here, by the way, in verse 3, that the days were required, for such are the days required of those who were embalmed, and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. That means, in the eyes of the Egyptians, this man was considered important. Although we have no record of him doing anything other than in Jacob blessing Pharaoh. It was his son. And because his son was so integral in saving Egypt, his father, therefore, was loved as well. And by the way, so would be the rest of his, his brothers, at least during all of this time. Now, with that in mind, it tells us, when the days were required for such a things to be done, they were, verse 4, and when the days of his mourning were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, and he said, if i found favor. Now, notice it doesn't say that Joseph speaks to Pharaoh. Now, interesting, because you would think Joseph has a straight shot to Pharaoh. I mean, he's he's his right-hand man, but Joseph is still in a state of mourning. And in a state of mourning, it is not a time to approach a dignitary. So Joseph instead approaches the the household of Pharaoh and asks them to speak to him. In respect, to be honest, for Pharaoh in his state of mourning. Would you please ask him? And here's the deal. My dad made me promise, made me swear, made, made me give a covenant on this, that I would bury him. Now, please hear me out. The one responsible for giving your father a proper burial is considered the one declared your firstborn. Joseph will be declared firstborn in regards to that. However, Judah will be the one responsible for the family. It's sort of the, the responsibilities have been divided. Now, please hear me. Here's the situation. With my oldest, normally, unless he's done something awful like this boy had, not like the oldest of them, Reuben that I would give him a, an extra measure of our, of, our, of, our, uh, of our inheritance. And he would be responsible for making sure that I got a proper burial. So let's say I have two boys, Bruno and Jeffrey. They look a lot alike, and they both look just like me. Bruno by his height. <laughs> Jeffrey, of course, by our facial features and hairline. Anyways, with all of that, and here's the deal. Now, I know that, let's just say of the two of them, I'm going to assume, Bruno, are you older? Or is Jeffrey older? You're older? Okay, good. See, I should know that as dad, right? Okay, so, Jeffrey, you're my firstborn. Now, if I have, a, if I have my inheritance, I'm going to divide it into how many places now? Three. Because there's one for each of them, and then a third, an extra one for my firstborn. Does that make sense so far? Now, with that in mind, let's just say I happen to have three million quid, which we all can laugh about, but just the same. And in that, that means that a million quid's going to Bruno, a million quid's going to Jeffrey, and another million quid's going to Jeffrey after I get my burial. Does that make sense? Now, to this day, this is still a key in regards to our hand. It's written into many of the traditional Jewish burials. Now, 2,000 years ago, it was also quite and just as important. Now, 2,000 years ago, that process was a year long. Because in those days... Now, obviously, one thing that there isn't a lot of in Israel, other than trees, is space. You can get a lot of rock. They grow rock really well there. Trees, they don't grow so well. But space is also quite limited. Kind of like London. You really don't want... I mean, it's, sooner or later, they're going to sort of have cemetery condos. You know what I mean? Where you can just sort of buy a spot six levels down underneath Uncle Joe or whatever. Well, that's the idea. So, you don't want to bury me in a full six and a half foot casket. That's too much space. So you have to wait for a year. So when I die, you put me in a thing in the Greek called a flesh eater. Fikas eat sarch flesh. Sarphikas, or as we say, sarcophagus. Now, when you put me in that, what happens in a year? Everything gets eaten except for my bones and dental records. So with that then, Jeffrey has to wait for a year. When the year is done, he can take that big stone box and he can now put me in a much smaller box. It just has to be longer than my longest bone, my femur, and it has to be wider than my widest bone, which is my skull. Does that make sense? And they call that an ossuary, since if you have osteoporosis, os is the word for bones. So, here's the idea. Now he's putting me in a bone box. You can find those all over Israel to this day. They're roughly about the size of a bread box, although that's kind of a gross thought. So, here's the idea. Jeffrey, the day that I die, Bruna just gets his cash. By the way, it leads me to believe when we read the story of the prodigal son, for instance, that the prodigal was a younger brother. Because he's he's going to get his inheritance immediately. and, And unless he was willing, there was no, seems like there was no discussion over the foregoing of that extra portion. I kind of get the idea he was the younger brother. And that means the older brother is the one who gets all tipped off, which makes a lot of sense. Just the same. Jeffrey just, I mean, I'm sorry, Bruno gets it. He's ready to, you know, let's just, you know, I'm going to mourn for dad. Now, respectfully, he's going to mourn for me for at least seven days. And he'll hire, he'll be responsible to some degree to try to rally up other people that sort of know me and love me. On the other hand, Jeffrey will be responsible for hiring the professional mourners. And there are people that are just basically, that's what they do for a living, is they cry. Now, all you have to do, let's be honest, is go to sort of a primary school to the latter ages of that, find a handful of girls, and you go, anyways. Well, so, with that in mind, sorry, that was me. Uh, so, so, he's got that, he's, he's put me in, the, he's put me in the, um, the sarcophagus, he's got a year, and in that year, when that year is done, he's gonna put me in an ossuary. And when he does that and puts me then in the family burial, he can receive this, the last portion of the inheritance. Are you with me? Interesting. Because in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, perhaps you've read it. Jesus is walking by and a man comes up to him and he says, I will follow you, but first let me bury my dad. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. Come and follow me. And you think, well, That's harsh. Poor guy just lost his dad. He's grieving, and Jesus is like, get over it and follow me. Wow, I don't get it. Where's the sort of sheep-loving, you know, warm, give-me-a-hug Jesus? Well, if I understand the culture, this makes so much sense. Because you get the idea what happened here is that his dad didn't just die. His dad died about a year ago. And he's like, Jesus, you don't get it. If you could just stay for like a week... I'll be able to put that away. I'll get the extra inheritance. And boom, then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, 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 boy, choose your inheritance now. And every time you want to say to someone, come on, why don't you just give everything and follow Jesus with me today? They'll be like, oh, but I've got this first. And whatever the this is, there will always be a this. Have you learned that? Because once this gets passed, there's a new this. And it's like, oh, it's school." Once I can just get past school, then I'll really follow Jesus with everything. And then you're like, now I'm broke with student loans. i got to get a job. Then I'll follow Jesus. And then it's like, well, I'm sort of paying it off. Now I need to get married. And then it's kids. And then it's a house. And then it's a car. And then, it's a, and then all of a sudden you're on your deathbed going, well, maybe do I have time now? And you're like, what a waste. Choose your inheritance today. Do you get it? And, and, and all the way back at the end of Genesis, we just kind of get the idea of how important it was to get that burial Right. And can I just say it this way? Wouldn't it be just wonderful if we focused on dying, right? Now, I'm not just talking about that moment. You know, we've watched enough Shakespeare where it's like half of the movies, somebody dying. But the, the idea of, of actually saying, you know what? I want to die more in love with Jesus than when I started. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Because one thing is really sad, and I see it in the, in the, in the tone of Paul In 2 Timothy, his last letter, and he's waiting. He's a day away from just dying, getting his head lopped off. And in all of that, he looks and he's just like, all of these people have forsaken me. And he looks and he's like, you know, these were great guys. There was a time when we were next to each other. We were pastor this and pastor that, or we were in the same thing, in the same rally, in the same whatever. And now I'm looking and the dust is cleared and and the room is half full. And and there's a part of it where it isn't like Paul has anger or management issues or any of that stuff where he's just filled with bitterness, to be honest. He just kind of looks around and he goes, wow, but but I made it. And I kind of get the idea that when Paul saw people that they were heroes of faith to him, that there gets a point where he's like, when is it going to be me? When he realizes his own humanity, he writes Romans earlier than this, but much later in his walk with Christ... And then when he started and, he's, and he says, you know, what do I do what I still don't want to do? I mean, by this point, should I still have this problem? And that's like, I, I believe that's 30 something years into his walk. And I get the idea here that sooner or later the dust clears and he's like, I, I finished. I, I made it. And when this situation, there's a great morning. Joseph spoke, and he spoke to an un- We don't have any record that this Pharaoh was a believer or anything along those lines. But he looks, and as he looks, he kind of says, and, he, and to the messengers of his house, and the, the people of, of Pharaoh's household come and talk to Pharaoh, and they're like, hey, this guy, his dad made him promise on his deathbed that he would get his bones back. Will you do it? And what I find interesting is even the unbeliever seems to have a level or a standard in regards to death. Because it is something we do all have in common. Now, they were, of course, enormously superstitious. The idea of embalming the body in the first place was trying to have it ready. Now, aren't you thankful that this? Now, maybe some of you, you're a little more sad. The older I get, the more happy I'm ready to get the new model. But it's like, I am so thankful this isn't the one I'm taking into heaven. Oh, glory to God for that. I'm not too sure. how I, I, God would have to do another miracle to call it glorified. But I look at it and I think, thank you. So this is the only place I get it. And can I just say this? Dare I say this? As a coach, as, as a life coach for all of us, this is your jersey. One day, and you don't know when, and I've learned this in regards to European football, it's so much different than American football, where it's like there's 65 commercials and every second is sort of highlighted. And so it's like, oh, there's 10 seconds left. Maybe they'll do all that. It's like all of a sudden it's like... You know, Game's over. And they all go, oh, okay, I guess we stop now. I'm like, that was it. And I've learned that. It's like maybe there's a little clock on the corner, but it isn't like this big dramatic calm down, and it hits an arc, and it goes back down. It's just sort of like they just keep running around and kicking, and maybe it went in and it did, oh, it's 0-0. Zero, zero. We're going to have to do something to try to make someone score. And, and the reason I say that is is that a lot of that, and that just shows how ignorant I am of the game, the reason I say that, though, is it's a lot like life. It's like all of a sudden there's a clock, and some of us kind of get a little ticker in it, but we, but all of a sudden it's sort of like we blink and it's just done. And it's like you're going to have to step off the field now. And could you imagine what it would be like to step off the field and you haven't even broken a sweat? Especially in a game like that where all you're doing is running. And I, I think, my goodness, I, I don't want to, to have this thing pristine. I want to use it up. Man, When I I hand this thing in and I've learned there are certain things when you're done, you've used it up, you're retiring the number because ain't nobody else going to wear that jersey after you did. And this is the only place you're going to wear it. Wear it well. But in it, man, recognize why you're wearing the jersey. You're not wearing the jersey for people to fall in love with the jersey. You're wearing the jersey because you've been brought into a team. And that team's got a point to it and a score to make. And God in his infinite wisdom has put you on the team. Man, use that jersey well. Use it. They're retiring two jerseys by the time this is done. And he says, please, can I go and bury my dad's jersey? And Pharaoh says, go ahead. Did you notice that Joseph didn't go alone? As a matter of fact, there are some commentators that believe there were more than 10,000 people that came with him. That's an awful lot of people. Now imagine, you're in the middle of nowhere. Sand everywhere, tumbleweeds blow by, and those are your friends. You've named them because it's a pretty barren area. And all of a sudden, in the midst of all of that, I don't know, 10,000 people show up. And not just 10,000 people, but like people with like everyone's wearing Armani suits and Rolexes. They all pull up in their stretch hummers and their limos. We are talking the greatest dignitaries of the day. Egypt was, in essence, the kingdom of the world in that day. So the richest, most powerful, clearly the most you know, the most influential people seemingly in the world all show up because of some man's jersey was getting retired. And he was getting retired to a place that, that, was, just, that was bought, that was purchased, and it's just a place to lay the dead. That's it. And And they get near the place, and for seven days they mourn. I think, how profound would that be? All of a sudden, there's the queen. There's the prime minister. There's the president of the United States. They're the leaders of EU, and they've all gathered together, and they're bawling their eyes out over a man that most of them didn't know existed 17 years ago because his son was so powerful and so influential. And at that place, the people kind of look and they go, wow. And notice what they say in verse 11. When the inhabitants of the land that came tonight saw the mourning at the threshing floor of a Tad, oh, stop. A Tad? What does a Tad mean? Has there ever been in the history of the world such mourning as this? Can you think of anything in Scripture? where there were that many people crying over death, where there was that intense of crying, that deep of emotion over death. I would say, well, you could say the flood, but most of those people were actually dying. They weren't weeping over the dying. They were just too busy dying themselves. Well, it's the word of Todd that blew it open for me. The word of Todd means thorn. I think thorns. Where do I see thorns? Where death was introduced, that's where I see thorns. And God brought me back to that point where all of a sudden He say, have you ever seen such intense mourning, such great grief, such heaviness and such pain, where all the dignitaries of the earth wept over a man, one man and his death? I say, let me tell you about another one you didn't see. Way back in Genesis 3, where thorns were introduced, it was God who was weeping, and all the dignitaries of heaven weeping because one man had now partaken of death. One man. And God takes me here at the end of the book, back to the beginning of the book to remind me, this is how God feels. What do you think would have happened? If his dad would have risen from the dead right there at that moment. Well, first of all, most of them would have dropped and passed out. We all could agree. But could you imagine the joy that would have been there sooner or later as that man would have been brought back to perfect health? You know, the scripture says, there is more joy over one sinner who repents. It tells us all the angels of God in heaven rejoice. If you've said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, every angel of God in heaven erupts in praise. Every one of them. You started a party. You, you, not Calvary Chapel, not Billy Graham. You, just you. That's how important enough you are. That just you, the moment you have, and if you haven't, today you can start that party. Just you, the moment you said yes, every angel of God in heaven, every dignitary, every leader, every power, every dominion that belongs and surrenders to the Father rejoices. The rest of them, they get a little bit upset. Too bad they lost. Now please hear me out. In this place, God takes us to a place of intense mourning. And they call the place then, is noticed then in verse 11. Therefore, the name of it was called Chabel Mizraim. Chabel, nothingness. Interesting. Emptiness. Wait a minute, does that word look familiar to you? It was the son that was born after the fall. That, by the way, would be Murdered. That was called nothing. Oh, a boy was born. His name, Cain. Containment. Interestingly enough, Jersey, shell, mortality. And then another baby comes out. Twins. Now, I understand these are the first babies born. First human beings born. So the first one was weird enough. But then when you realize you got a 2-4 special, it got even weirder. So we had already planned to name one. So what do you name the second? Nothing. How'd you like to be that kid in school? Here's my brother. What's his name? All of goodness incarnate. What's your name? Nothing. (laughs) And there'll be nothing that will be murdered because he made the right sacrifice of faith. And here I'm brought back to that spot, but this is the nothingness of Mizraim. And Mizraim, by the way, is Egypt. The sons carry him then to the cave of Machpelah, which, by the way, we'll see again with David, before Mamre, which Abraham brought before the field of Ephron, the Hittite, his property of burial places. He buried his father. Joseph went back. Now, it's interesting, because what Joseph had to say to Pharaoh was, let me go. You kind of get an idea. That's a little foretaste of what we're going to get in the next 12 chapters of the book of Exodus. Let me go. Joseph's brothers now realize that his dad, their dad is dead. They already knew that. But now they realize that this could actually become ugly. That's verses 15 through 17. So they send messengers to Joseph. Joseph sent messengers to Pharaoh. They send messengers to Joseph. And they say, "Um, Joey, uh, dad promised. Dad said his dying words were really, forgive your brothers. Please forgive your brothers. Can you see them kind of pulling that out on it? By the way, in that notice, by the way, they called it a trespass and a sin. Did you notice that? Joseph's response first is weeping. And then he says, Am I in the place of God? It's God's job to forgive. Please hear me. It's God's job to forgive. The word literally means to cast away and leave. When you've blown it, it's God's job to to forgive. That part you should know. If we sin, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when someone's someone's done something nasty to you, you go, I can't forgive him." It's God's job to forgive. And if that God lives inside of you, He will forgive through you, if you allow Him. Well, with that then, Joseph says, am I in the place of God? Now, understand, back in Genesis 45, when he first met up with his brothers and revealed himself, he did say to them, look at what you planned, God, it was God who did all of this. God got me to Egypt to bring salvation. That was the whole point of it. This wasn't you guys. You thought you were, you were actually pawns in a larger picture here. I actually, God brought me here. He just used you to do it. It was God who did it. But he doesn't say openly, I forgive you. But he does say, I will provide for you and I'll take care of you. And now look at how he ends this portion, by the way. He says then after that, please look at, they say, please forgive. He says, look at, of course, but I am in the place of God. Verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Therefore, I will provide for you and your little ones. Do you get that? So Joseph again reminds them, I promised you I'd take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. One point and then we'll go back, we'll go to our last key in this. In 2 Corinthians, well, let me say this. In 1 Corinthians, there's a crazy situation. The church is a mess. The Corinthian church is a three-ring circus. There are people suing each other. There are people sleeping around with each other. A guy has his, his dad's wife. Now, no matter how you do the math, it's wrong. And in all of that, uh, there is, you know, there's all these divisions. I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, and all of this. And he just says, you guys are all just carnal. All of this is, is just, you guys are just carnal. You are not spirit-led. You are a carnal-led church. Ironic for a church that is really about displaying spiritual gifts. Very, very full of spiritual gifts, but very carnally driven. Try to put those two things together. In the middle of all that, he says about that guy that was sleeping with his mom's, his, his, his father's wife. Be it his real mother or not, we don't know. He says, boot him out of the church, hand him over to Satan, that his soul would be spared. Oh, his body might be burned, but his soul would be spared in the day of judgment. And you say, well, that sounds so cool. Which one of you wants to do that? Say, look, you should go get this right before you come back. You can't live that kind of life and really think you're going to be okay here. But see, God didn't do that because what he really wanted to do was not have that guy in the church. What he really wanted was that guy to repent. By 2 Corinthians, that guy did Repent. And it's so much. So he said that as a result of that. And, and by the way, search it on your own. Second Corinthians two will make that clear. But when he said this in Second Corinthians two six about the man, he says the punishment which was inflicted by the majority was sufficient for such a man. Now, on the contrary, now since he's repented, you ought to forgive. And comfort him, lest he be such a one be swallowed up by too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Now understand, when a person does repent, you need to go out of your way to let them know that was an excellent choice and to let them know they are welcome. They're loved. Reaffirm your love for him. Comfort such an individual. Now listen, and I'll just dare say it. God wants you miserable when you're running from him. But the moment you say yes, there should be an avalanche of love that should come back at you. And man, if we were like that, we wouldn't need our week. We would just challenge them. The moment you say yes to Jesus, it's waiting for you. Well, with that in mind, Joseph is our demonstrator of that to these brothers. They've repented, they've surrendered themselves, they've bowed before him now. And in doing so, Joseph is going to look at him and he speaks kindly to them. He reaffirms their love and he comforts them. All of the things that 2 Corinthians told us we should do, we have it in front of us. Now, I should say before we even get into our last thing in this, Is there anyone in your life you know that needs to happen to? Someone's burned you, someone's done something rotten or nasty to you, but they have repented. If they've repented, are you in a place then where you're willing to reaffirm, to speak, to to go to that point now and seek to comfort them? But they've burned me. Yeah, but remember, it's God's job to forgive. And if God forgives through you, then he can give you the power to do that. And only, and let's, let's face it, when that kind of thing happens clearly, Jesus is at work. And maybe that's something, that's obviously a word for someone or the Lord wouldn't have spoken it today. So there's someone in your life you need to actually get right with, even though they're the one who you'd say did the wrong, but now you are responsible to go and take the initiative to go and restore that individual now that they've repented from that. Or you're like, well, fine, good. Now that you've stopped doing it, good. We can end this thing and just I don't want anything to do with you. Well, you actually go as far as seeking to bless and minister to them. Verse Verse 22. Now it's Joseph's turn to die. We fast-forwarded 58 years. He and his father's household, Joseph, lived 110 years, the youngest of all of these patriarchs. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. Now, that's interesting, because God had promised the fourth generation would leave Egypt. By the way, in the fourth generation, starts from you start from Israel down. Which, by the way, now, if I look at that, if you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... And then Joseph, that's our fourth generation. We follow four generations. That means it's very likely that Joseph would have met the one who will be leaving Egypt. I mean, he will be actually speaking to a child that will be able to say, look, get my bones out of here. I may, I'm going to ask you to promise. I want you to promise that. That's a pretty wild thought. He saw his great-grandchildren. And that would be the individuals that at least will make it out of Egypt. So, Joseph said to his brothers, and by the way, again we have. By the way, I'm always looking for what's this beautiful thing God put the name Machir in it, and what's Machir mean? Machir means salesman, so you can take wherever you want with that. Verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, "I'm dying. Appears as if he's the youngest to die. By the way, of these boys, we don't have record here. By the way, that any of the other brothers have died. God will surely visit you, bring you out of the land." To the land in which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children. He says, look, God will surely visit you. Wait a minute. God's not going to just relocate you. God is going to come down and personally interface with you for deliverance. If you're going to have deliverance, it's going to have to be that God isn't going to just wave his hand. He's going to step in and you are going to encounter him. And he doesn't encounter you just for warm fuzzies. He's always got an agenda. And that agenda always involves bringing you closer to him. He goes, look at this is Joseph dying. He doesn't look and go, you've been faithful, you haven't been faithful, I'm wiping you out and I'm going to bless you and that kind of thing. Joseph just looks and he goes, look at. I just want to say this, you aren't going to be in Egypt forever and you need to know when you are out of Egypt, when you get out of this place, take me with you. That's the idea here. With that, Joseph died. He was 110 and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt The story ends, by the way, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, where we read that the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought out of the land of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in a plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. They will fulfill this promise. Now, as we go to prayer, friends, I just want to ask you a couple quick questions. One... In every choice you make involving the author of life, there will be life on one side and death to the other. If you say yes to Jesus, you say death to the old you. Is that a good choice? I would say absolutely. The one that was selfish, self centered, governed by my own lusts, evil desires, and selfishness, all of that gets laid to rest. That person gets crucified. God's not about redecorating the old you and trying to make the old you look a little nicer. He's about reinvention. Are you willing to let Him reinvent you? Are you trying to drag that old you over the cross? That may be in the lines of unforgiveness, as we see it clearly here today. Where there are people you just still think you have a right to to not forgive, meanwhile Jesus forgave you of all your nastiness? Is that really right? Hey, look at, according to Scripture, Jesus says you're welcome to not forgive anyone you don't want to forgive as long as you're willing to go to hell for it. Because he says to the level in which you forgive should be the level to which you should expect to be forgiven. But let me ask you, do you really see yourself as a person that created a party in heaven? That the entire heavens broke free and erupted in praise because you said yes to the author of life? Because that's how precious you are to him. Now the good news is, we are about to, next week, what an amazing thought, embark then on the book of Exodus, which by the word means, exit. And we leave this one saying, God's not going to keep you in Egypt forever. You're not going to be in this place forever. And if you're going to leave, take me with you. Now with that in mind, might I just say, you're not going to be in that shell either, that jersey you're wearing, you're not going to be in it forever either. And man, when you leave, it would be really wise to take the son of promise with you as well. Because there's a place that's promised you. By the way, that generation will, that will leave Egypt will never know it until they go there. It's all they can hear is stories. And our permanent address, beloved, I've never been there. Have you? Times of worship, great times of praise, beautiful moments of intimacy in God's word. They're hints and they're appetizers of the main course. But I've never actually seen the property that God has already prepared for me in heaven. And that's crazy because that's my permanent address and I've yet to move there. But I do know this. When I do, I'm taking that boy with me because that son of promise was the one who redeemed me in the first place. He was my savior before I ever stepped foot in the land that he, that he was saving. And you just got to say yes to him. If you've never said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, I would love to give you that honor today. But if you have said yes to him, are you willing to let him do what he wants to do in your life? To reinvent you. I guarantee you, there's nothing he will reinvent that will not be an improvement. And you have an entire cheering section in heaven rejoicing over every choice you make to say yes to him. And that's not just to the unbeliever to say yes to him the moment. That's every time you say yes to him. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for the way you've gone before us. What a gorgeous text and how precious it is. And Lord, I pray right now for anyone who is suffering in any way where death is a reality in our lives. It may be somebody physical right now that we love and we know that right now that death is getting the better of them. Disease or or age or whatever it is. Injury is getting the best of them and we grieve that. But also, Lord, we have to be honest. There are times where even parts of us that we know don't belong in us anymore. That's parts of us in our having given ourselves to you, Jesus, and now we see parts of us that we liked before that you are you're sending off to death because there's something better and we can't see the better yet, and so we're grieving who we were because we're seeing it leave us. God, give us more faith to trust you. It's those moments when we, all we can look at is what's behind us instead of what's ahead of us that we have yet to discover. And I know, Lord, that, that in the end of it all, there was a death where, we, where man was separated from you, that place where we were just intimate, walking together and loving each other and just exploring together and me, discovering all kinds of things about you and in that just delighting in you. And, and now I've accepted the gift of your son and now you've let me back into that place of intimacy and you've washed me clean. Let me crave that every moment of my life and not to choose to leave that for any reason, for even a second. But that I would wake up each day excited about the things you have yet for me to discover that day that you've already prepared. And then I would seek you out, knowing that there you are desiring to take me by the hand and walk me. Thank you for creating me with that desire for companionship. Thank you for having it yourself. And thank you for having it for me. And though we may not understand everything about you, our brains would explode. We do understand you give us life. That we do know. That's how it all started. And so I pray right now for every believer in here, God, that we would get back to that simple beauty of just walking with you and discovering you as we do. And right now, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Honestly, have you said yes to the gift of Jesus? If you've not, I'd like to give you the privilege of saying yes today. I'm not asking you to join our church. We don't have a membership. You're certainly welcome to come. It starts by accepting the gift that Jesus paid on the cross, that death that was in lieu of you. And in doing so, all of our grief and sin and all of that guilt was paid for, and then he rose again to offer us a brand new life, the kind of life that is actually living in intimacy with the Father. So I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree with it, I ask at the end for you to give a resounding and confident amen. And what you're saying is, let so be it. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. I agree. And here it is. God in heaven, I know you created me for life to have an intimate walk with you. And yet I know I was born spiritually dead, selfish, self-centered, self-driven. And the very wages of my unrighteousness have earned me that separation between me and you. And I know that grieves you. You feel pain over that because what you really want is that relationship you created me to have with you. So as a righteous judge, because of your perfect love for me, you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to pay my penalty on the cross, that I could have my debt paid, and in doing so, you could give me life. And then, having resurrected from the dead just as your scripture promised, Jesus offers me that new life Death no longer having mastery over me. Sin no longer my master. But now I surrender myself to Jesus as my Lord. And gladly receive your love. I may not know everything, but I know this is right. And I gladly surrender myself to you, knowing that I have now become your masterpiece, your artwork, your project. Do with my life that which you desire. Feel free to slay everything that doesn't belong to you. And in its place, bring something beautiful, thriving, living, abundant. So with that now, Lord, I just say yes. Yes to you. Yes to your gift. In the surrender of myself, I say, here I am, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, amen.